listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. This is Kyle Matthews of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Rights Studies. Uh, we're pleased today to have another interview um, as part of the Coronavirus Diaries, uh, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic. Today, we're very lucky to have Rima Demus Incest join us. She's the representative of UNHCR in Canada. That's the Re- Refugee Agency. Rima, great to have you join us today. Thank you, Kyle. I'm very happy to be with you. Rima, one of the issues is that the most vulnerable people on the planet right now are people who are who are refugees that are internally displaced and are fleeing persecution. Please tell us about what UNHCR is doing right now uh, to deal with the most challenging situation uh, and, and the most vulnerable people. Um, in the world. Well, maybe I'll just take a moment to set the scene a little bit and help people understand what what this means on the ground and what it actually all looks like. Um, so you have situations of, of over 70 million people globally who are displaced. Of that uh, number, about 25 million are refugees, and then you've also got internally displaced um, peoples who are within their own countries, um, but also facing very challenging circumstances. So we have we have refugee camps that have been set up. Um, in some instances, they've been there for decades already. In some instances, they're newer, um, but they've basically become home to uh, people fleeing violence, war, persecution, and any number of, of uh, human rights violations and, and risks to their lives and their, the lives of their loved ones. So they find themselves in these camps, which um, the overwhelming majority of them are are situated in countries that are already struggling with uh, serious developmental and economic issues themselves. And as I said, in some instances, they've been sitting in these camps for decades. They're extremely crowded, uh, densely populated little plots of earth. and they are not places where you would have easy access to clean water. So all of the instructions and advice were being given by the World Health Organization on how best to combat COVID, washing your hands, distancing yourself uh, socially, quarantining or, or isolating yourself if you become ill or you feel like you might be ill. Those are things that are next to impossible to do in a refugee camp setting. So with that in mind, um, UNHCR has had to adjust its its way of working in order to try and get ahead of the pandemic because we've been very lucky that we haven't had to date any outbreaks in the camps. Um, But we do have some really large camps in Africa, in the Middle East, in North Africa, and for that reason, we need to be ready. So we've been using this time now um, to prepare. Some of the things that we've been doing are um, focusing on communications within the camps and and other uh, displaced uh, people's settlements. So getting um, community leaders on board, members of the refugee community on board to share messages about how you can stop the spread of the virus, um, what measures you should be taking. We've been setting up water stations in reception centers, uh, hand washing stations essentially 
in camps, um, in, in, in medical facilities. We've been training local medical um, officials uh, on how to deal with it should it come to this point that we're dealing with that situation. We've also managed in some instances to carve out um, space for isolation facilities, which are, are being stood up right now. We are stockpiling um, equipment, medicine in regional hubs so that they can get to locations quickly if the outbreak does come. And we've also adjusted things like food distribution. So rather than have um, one large distribution site at a given time, time on a given day we're staggering those now so getting people out to receive their food packages but at different times of the day and to avoid long queues and and lots of people congregating similarly with cash assistance we're doing we're doing distributions um, or disbursements now to cover people for two or three months rather than just a monthly cash disbursement and this allows people to have um, cash on hand so they can also do their best to obtain whatever supplies are needed to get them through this period but it also avoids people having to come out repeatedly um, and trying to, to do that social distancing in a very tricky uh, situation. I imagine that the work of UNHCR has also become more difficult, though, because of borders being closed. I mean, UNHCR works on many durable solutions for refugees, and one is resettlement. And with borders being closed, I imagine that resettlement, has that, has that stopped to a nil, or is it still going on? Please tell us about this aspect of UNHCR's work. Sure. I mean, you know, as, as, as we deal with this global health emergency, um, governments are, are rightly and appropriately concerned about their own populations and taking measures to, um, to safeguard uh, their, their countries. And we understand that. And we also have spoken with governments worldwide and encouraged them to ensure that these measures, whatever they might be, are temporary in nature so they don't carry on beyond um, what is required and that they are also still available to us should we find ourselves in a situation where we have emergency resettlement needs so to bring this um, into the broader context we we did have to halt um, temporarily halt resettlement travel a couple of weeks back that or that announcement was made officially with um, the international organization of migration because they support us with the logistics on resettlement travel. And we had to basically put it all temporarily on hold because we did have families in transit that were being stranded, families that were being separated, and we recognized that it was going to become a logistical um, nightmare to try and, and proceed uh, with a business as usual model, which just doesn't work under these extraordinary circumstances. So we have now um, basically limited our asks to governments um, to just be available to at least consider emergency resettlement cases. And here we're talking about life and death situations where resettlement is a life-saving tool and without it, we know that somebody will not make it through this crisis. And these are not, I mean, these are, these are people who were already far advanced in the resettlement process and had already been cleared, but find themselves in, in situations of extreme uh, risk uh, truly life and death scenarios and we've been we've been successful in in moving some people a very small number of people 
um, recognizing that this is not a time when you're going to be able to do the normal kinds of resettlement um, arrangements that would that would ordinarily be in place. Rima, another question I have for you is that the entire UN system has has really jumped in to try to um, improve the humanitarian situation, help civilians. The UN Secretary General has called for a global ceasefire, and we had some positive news coming out of Yemen that fighting might be stopped. But I imagine at this point, UNHCR needs more resources than ever before. Um, and, and I'm wondering is that one of the, the, the thing that, that disturbs me is that I see um, many countries are, are having economic problems right now. Uh, in, and I'm wondering, um, are you seeing traditional donors to UNHCR stepping up and saying, we wanna support you regardless of the situation? Is, is it promising from, from donors that are coming forward? I know Canada has made some new contributions as of late. Tell us about the financial situation. How much more support does UNHCR need to deal in these exceptional circumstances? Well, you're absolutely right, Kyle, um, because we have existing humanitarian emergencies all over the world that haven't stopped um, and, and require a consistent and constant flow of resources to keep people going um, in very dire circumstances already. And then you've got the COVID emergency layered on top of that. So it is a, it is a very challenging time for the UN. And recognizing that the UN system rallied very quickly um, and, and launched a $2 billion appeal, uh, I believe it was about a week ago now. Uh, it feels like so much longer. But we have, um, of that portion, uh, $255 million was the ask put forward by UNHCR to support the kind of preparedness um, measures that I, I, I outlined at the beginning. To be honest with you, we've been um, overwhelmed by the generosity and the support of governments. All of our traditional uh, donors have stepped forward and did so quickly. Canada was amongst the first to do so um, and has always been a, a global leader and champion um, on refugee issues. And they've really stayed true to that position by coming coming forward quickly and announcing their support um, for UNHCR. And we're, we're grateful for that. And we're going to be calling on donors, I think, for, for some time to come to help us support this response. And it, it, I mean, people might be wondering, why would we want governments now, as you say, that are struggling with real economic issues, some of the most difficult economic downturns we've seen um, in decades, perhaps even more. Why would we be sending money outside of our country when we have people here at home who need that support? And the answer to that is basically that one doesn't preclude the other. Um, you know, a strong, robust national response to this, this health emergency is absolutely essential. And we've seen Canada do that really well. But at the same time, we recognize that this virus doesn't respect international borders. It travels. Um, the cases we have right here in Canada are, are largely as a result of that kind of travel. And, and Canadians are international citizens, and we know that they'll resume life and travel um, in a matter of time. And in order to ensure that this virus doesn't circle back around, um, we need to be supporting the governments and the countries that don't have the resources and the capability that we have here in Canada. So uh, that that ongoing funding requirement will be one you'll hear from from the un um, as as the weeks and months pass because we in order to do this really well uh, and to prevent this this spread from continuing we're going to need that constant flow of support and, and i agree with you i think the key point is um is that we're kind of realizing that 
globalization, the world is more interconnected. And if we want to deal with this as a global community, we have to help refugees. We have to help the most vulnerable. Because if we don't, as you said, it, it can come back and affect us again or in a second wave. So I think that's a key lesson. Maybe my last question to you would be, what message do you have to Canadians about the long term, about why um, we must continue to support refugees in UNHCR? You know, we have the largest number of displaced people. We have conflicts that, that are ongoing. We're getting maybe looking too internally at, our, at ourselves right now. But, but why should we really, in the long term, support the refugee case and IDPs and others who are stateless and so forth? Oh, I think it's about, I mean, putting aside the moral and the legal questions, because they're, they're you know, states have signed up um, to, to, to honor a series of obligations and commitments uh, under international law. So putting, putting those aside, um, it just, it makes sense practically, logically, for the reasons I mentioned before. You, know, you really want to make sure that this thing is dealt with efficiently and well and equally across the globe so it doesn't come back. But um, the most vulnerable among us, the ones who don't have what we have right now in Canada, which is you know, as, about, as good as you're going to get globally in terms of your ability to fight and, and rebound from this very, very difficult situation, we need to continue giving that support to ensure that we ourselves are safe in the long term as well. And we just don't want to emerge from this crisis and wake up to a world these important values that have been the cornerstone of, of our, our country for so long have suddenly vanished um, and, and have used the pandemic as cover to do things that would otherwise not be um, admissible under international law. And, and so we want to make sure that we safeguard that and we protect and preserve all of those hard-won rights and freedoms that people enjoy today. Well, Rima, I want to thank you for joining us, taking time on your busy schedule. And as a former um, staff member with UNHCR, I, I salute you and your important work. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you very much. <laughs>